From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, and I am sitting in for Tony today. You can follow the show at, at, at TonyPerkins.com. Find this and every show. You can also follow Tony at, at Tony underscore Perkins on Gab. If you want to get updates from Family Research Council, text the word STAND to 67742. That's STAND to 67742 to have those alerts sent to you directly. You can also download the Stand Firm app on the App Store or and on Google Play. Also, a great opportunity this week. Uh, we talked about it before on the program this week, but this is a unique week to support and a unique opportunity to support Family Research Council. There is a $1 million challenge match. Your gift will be quadrupled. Yes, quadrupled between now and Friday at 10 a.m. So call 800 800- Two two five four zero zero eight. Call eight hundred two two five four zero zero eight to have your contribution to faith, family, and freedom quadrupled. Now, a big show uh, for you today. The big news. Uh, Joe Biden finally had a press conference. We will discuss that. We are also going to talk about whether. It's true that Republicans, the Republican Party, no longer needs big business. There's a report and a memo that suggests maybe that's the case. Then we're going to go to the state of Montana and see if we're finding evidence of that fact. Legislation moving through the Montana legislature that had been killed by big business in other states in recent years seems to be sailing through the process in Montana. We'll talk to Jeff Lasloffy about that. And at the end of the program, we're going to get a great update from China. Uh, maybe not a great update. There's, I don't, are there good updates from China? We're going to find out what's going on in China. And uh, President Biden actually had some things to say about that. But uh, for the headline, President Biden did have a press conference. He, this was the longest period uh, the public, the press corps, had ever waited between inauguration and the president actually holding a press conference. And uh, President Biden finally did um, agree to take questions, kind of, because by all appearances, he knew who he was going to call on. The people who were going to be called on knew that they were going to be called on, and the questions were kind of anticipated. So is that a press conference? I don't know. But he was asked about, one of the things he was asked about was the filibuster, and this has been a big story because the Senate is thinking about doing away with it to ram through their uh, priorities. And here's what President Biden had to say about the filibuster. We've got to get to the place where I get 50 votes so that the Vice President of the United States can break the tie, or I get 51 votes without her. And so I'm going to say something outrageous. I have never been particularly poor at calculating how to get things done in the United States Senate. So the best way to get something done, if, you, if it holds near and dear to you that you uh, um, like to be able to... Anyway, I'm, we're going to get a lot done. Well, that was clear as mud, wasn't it? If you can understand what that means about President Biden's interpretation of his position on the filibuster, then you are smarter than I am. But he also had to say something to say about another issue that's maybe the top issue so far in his presidency, and that's what's going on at the border. He was asked about the border, and here's what he had to say on that. 
Truth of the matter is, nothing has changed. As many people came, 28% increase in children to the border in my administration, 31% in the last year of, in 2019 before the pandemic in the Trump administration. It happens every single solitary year. There is a significant increase in the number of people coming to the border in the winter months of January, February, March. That was President Biden on the border. I'm not exactly sure what to make of all of that either, but to help us sort this out, we hope, is Congressman Brian Babin, who's been to the border, who has been thinking about the border, and who represents a state that is on the border. Congressman Babin, thank you for joining us. Great to be with you, Joseph. Well, we are glad to have you. Maybe you can offer some clarity. I don't know if you had a chance to listen or watch the press conference today, um, but did you learn anything? No, I didn't learn much of anything. And, and uh, to go 64 days for a president to go 60 with 47 years of, of government service to go 64 days without a press conference uh, is just unheard of. And quite frankly, I was very, very disappointed in the uh, in the press conference. Uh, it really was a, a, a big bunch of nothing. Uh, he didn't take uh, any hardball questions at all. He took none from any uh, conservative outlets. He, uh, there were pre-screened questions from Democrat-friendly media. And so, you know, who else is surprised about it? And, you know, Hyden Biden is back doing his thing again. Uh, and I was very disappointed. It didn't, it didn't really clear up anything. He seemed to blame Trump uh, for many of the problems on the border. Uh, you just played one of his, uh, one of his uh, uh, statements there uh, about Trump, uh, and he said every president uh, has had these, uh, these uh, spikes and, and people coming across the border. Yes, Trump had his in 2019, but let me tell you, uh, he implemented policies and negotiated with Mexico and the Northern Triangle countries. Uh, and he had some really smart folks that worked for him, and I've dealt with them as the co-chairman of the House uh, Border Security Caucus. Uh, and he had that border under control more than anything that I've seen in, in really in decades. Uh, so, you know, it is a Biden-created problem on the border. Uh, we're going down there. I'm taking some uh, uh, about 12 of my Texas uh, colleagues, uh, members of the House, uh, we're going down there to see for ourselves. Uh, and, you know, at, at this point in time, it's it's uh, we have 15 to 16,000 uh, illegal juveniles, unaccompanied juveniles and children in, in custody, uh, are well on track to be the highest in history. Uh, and and, it, and it, all at the expense of the American taxpayer and coming in with covid positive cases. During a pandemic and in a, re- in a recession, uh, it is really a very, very, really dire situation going on. I've, I've talked to Border Patrol agents, and I'll be glad to talk to you about that as well. Yeah, well, I, I, I do want to hear, hear about that. You are the co-chairman of the Congressional Border Security Caucus, so this is something that you have studied, you've been working on, you've been to the border many times you mentioned the change in, in just recent months with the transition of the administrations, uh, and, and you say it's a Biden-created problem. Can you be specific about what oh. you mean by that? What has, what has he done that has changed the situation on the border? Absolutely. I'll, I'll tell you, he is uh, uh, 
Uh, he has done away with uh, the uh, migrant protection protocols to, to, to remain in Mexico that he worked out with President Lopez Obrador, uh, where people coming up here, they used to just step across the border and say, I'm seeking asylum, and then they, uh, they, uh, they run them through and then turn them loose in the end of the country. And uh, uh, this has now gone by the wayside. Even President Lopez Obrador is calling Biden the migrant president and even even alluded to the fact that he's empowering and enriching uh, the uh, the Mexican drug cartels. Uh, the and uh, he, we, we keep hearing from Mayorkas, uh, from Secretary Mayorkas and President Biden, uh, that the, the so-called inhumanity, the inhumane conditions, the uh, cruelty of of the of the uh, Trump administration keeping kids in cages, uh, also uh, uh, you know keeping them uh, far longer uh, mm-hmm. than than normal. And we look and see some of the some of the comments of both Mayorkas, Biden, and also uh, uh, Vice President Jacqueline Kamala Harris, uh, who was when yeah. asked if she was going to the to the border, and she gave this cackle and laughed at that like it was something really funny. Uh, and then when you look. At uh, some of her comments when she was a uh, a uh, a candidate running for for uh, president, and, and she says ICE was equi- was the equivalent of the Ku Klux Klan. She wanted to cut uh, detention facilities of fifty percent of their beds. She said if you held an unaccompanied child over seventy two hours, it was inhumanity. And now I wonder if she would say the exact same thing now. I seriously doubt it. But, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing the, that President Biden has kind of uh, turned over the, the border situation to Kathleen uh, Kamala. And uh, I, I just wonder if she will answer questions in a press conference uh, to, to some of the things that she has said in the past. Uh, it, it, it's, it's just a very dire situation. Border Patrol agents, the morale of them are going straight down. Uh, and then uh, some of them are even, even quitting on the job. Uh, and you, you might have two Border Patrol agents taking care of hundreds of uh, unaccompanied uh, children. I'll give you one example. This was, a, this was a quote from an anonymous Border Patrol agent down in Donna, Texas, and, and talking about one of their facilities. They used to be called cages, you know, when uh, right. uh, President Trump was in office. Now they're, they're facilities uh, for influx and care. But Pod 3A says, this is a quote, designed to hold 80 people. And on this day, he says, we have 694 unaccompanied uh, juveniles and children in this facility. This is an 867% uh, capacity, over capacity of this detention space. Now, and, I, got a uh, quite, I have a question for you about those, because those are dramatic increases. Now, I don't know yes. if there's a way to prove this, if it's anecdotal, but what's your sense of, are these children who just got a sense of we can go now, so we will? Are coyotes involved in this? Are the cartels involved oh, in this? Yes. What, is this something the they're choosing to do? Nobody, yeah, yeah, Joseph, nobody comes across that border unless they are paying the cartels or they are working for the cartels. You will lose your life if you do not do business with the cartels. That's the way this, this thing works. They have coyotes that carry them in. They've got scouts that are up on the hills. They'll bum rush the border, create a diversion, open up a gap when uh, they pull people off the line, uh, Border Patrol agents, and then where the gap is, they uh, they send their drugs and their, uh, their human uh, trafficking uh, uh, right through that area. 
And, and let me just say this. Uh, the Biden administration absolutely is failing the American people. And uh, uh, the governor of Texas is saying that he's going to send uh, uh, people down there and has been. But it's time to really send some forces down to the border, step up and, and step into the gap created by the lack of enforcement, the, the, really the violation of immigration laws by the Biden administration, and start protecting the American people, protect uh, protect us from crime, from terrorism. A number of these people uh, have been uh, on the terrorist watch list that have come through. Uh, we know that uh, the average uh, border crosser has got uh, several uh, convictions or pending charges against them uh, in other countries or even here for, for repeat uh, uh, offenders that, that are deported and then come back. And then that, that's another thing. Uh, stopping this is another thing that Biden did was to uh, put a freeze on all deportations, which kills the interior enforcement uh, lever that we have to prevent these uh, and incentivization of these people to continue to keep coming. Well, you have you have given us a good description of this, and I know there's so much more to say. We're going to have to have you back on to discuss this, but we do appreciate your your passion for this and also your your knowledge because it is helpful congressman brian babin thank you so much for your time thank you joseph god bless god bless you and we are going to continue to track this because it's not going away but uh, we're going to change subjects coming up after the break a government affairs firm staffed by top gop insiders has issued a warning to corporate America that the Republican Party might not need them anymore. Is that true as they go woke? We'll have that conversation after the break. Hey, Matt. Hey, Hannah. What's going on? Why so gloomy? Well, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time, and I just didn't do it. Oh, yeah? What did you have planned that you didn't get to do? Well, I was actually hoping I would finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it. Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh, yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out. When did they start? I, I would be so far behind. Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in any time. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading. Nice. Where can I find this? Go to frc.org slash Bible and you can get started. Where's that again? frc.org slash Bible. Got it. Checking it out now. In our time, North Korea remains one of the world's most mysterious countries. Unfortunately, what we do know about North Korea indicates the country is also one of the world's worst abusers of human rights, including violations of religious freedom. The North Korean regime has engaged in an intense crackdown on religion for decades. Today, few religious believers remain, and those who do face grave danger. The secretive nature of the regime, nicknamed the Hermit Kingdom, makes it difficult for American leaders to address these human rights issues. Yet, even though options are limited, the gravity of the situation calls on Western countries to take every action possible to relieve the suffering of the North Korean people, a people who have no chance of speaking up for themselves. To learn more about this important issue, 
Check out FRC's publication titled North Korea, the world's foremost violator of religious freedom. To access the information you need to stay informed, including a list of policy proposals, go to frc.org slash North Korea. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain, and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony Perkins today. With more and more corporations throwing in with the left, Republicans are less interested in protecting companies and their wishes and more interested in addressing the needs of American workers. And that's paying off for the GOP, literally. As we've shared on this program, Republicans are seeing a surge of donations with the sheer number of people giving to the conservative cause, offsetting the punch that corporate America thought they had. Are we witnessing a seismic shift? What does this mean for the GOP and what does this mean for corporations? Well, a warning was recently issued to the business community by CGCN, a government affairs firm staffed by top GOP insiders. Joining me now to talk about this memo is Matt Boyle, the Washington political editor at Breitbart News. Matt, welcome to Washington Watch. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is a huge story. Well, tell us what first tell us what CGCN is and why this memo is notable. Yeah, so CGCN is a government affairs public affairs firm in Washington DC. It's staffed by a whole ton of different people from across the political spectrum in the Republican Party. There's former Mitt Romney staffers, former Kevin McCarthy staffers, former Donald Trump staffers, right? So like kind of your uh, and, and everybody in between, right? Like, so it's a big firm, uh, a lot of Republicans. Uh, and what they do is they advise uh, various companies as well as, you know, various organizations, trade associations, et cetera, on how to deal with Republican lawmakers. And what they, what they did is they put together this memo. It's unsigned, so it's not written by a particular person at the firm. Uh, the, uh, uh, again, uh, it's a firm that's staffed by everybody from, you know, you run the gamut of former Romney staffers to former Trump staffers and everybody in between. Um, so the, what they did was they put together this memo uh, to corporations, right? It's, it's more of an open letter, not just to, to companies, but uh, it can be taken as a message, as a warning to companies that as they throw in with the woke leftist ideology of pushing for, uh, you know, everything from the transgender agenda to the immigration agenda to 
uh, minimum wage agenda of the, the hard left of the Democrat Party and everything in between, right? So the, you're seeing this more and more from companies embracing woke ideology. There, companies were traditionally protected by Republicans. Republicans were the, the company, the, the party of, uh, you know, fighting back against corporate tax hikes. They were the party of fighting back against, you know, certain uh, uh, fighting for like open trade deals, free trade deals type of a thing. Uh, you're starting to see that less and less among Republicans. Yeah. Not that the Republicans are racing to raise taxes or something like that, but ultimately the Republicans are more focused on the populist agenda. And, and on that, that point, we saw under- yeah, on mm-hmm. that point, why do we think – because you know, the political leadership on the left is not shy about their – about looking down their nose, at least publicly, at the business community. And and they do make life harder for businesses. Why is it that we're seeing this shift in the business world away from from what appears to be in their best interest to kind of like just left-wing cultural issues? Yeah, so I think that part of the reason why the business community is doing this is out of fear, right? They're they're, they're kowtowing, they're bowing down before uh, these crazy radical leftists. You see cancel call for running rampant across the board, people attacking people in the media. Uh, and it, it, it's kind of an appeasement strategy from corporate America uh, to appease this, this radical – dictatorial almost leftist uh, worldview, uh, you know, especially as, you know, you see Democrat complete control in Washington and some state houses like or some state capitals like Virginia, right, like has just gone fully left in the last uh, state house elections that they had. Uh, So so again, uh, I think that part of it is, is you know, there's an appeasement strategy there. But on the other side of the point here. That's the that's the big question. Is it, it's not really the left isn't like giving them anything for caving into every every one of their demands. They just demand more every single time. It's like uh, you know when you deal with a terrorist, if you negotiate with a terrorist, you know once they yeah. figure out that you can nego- that they that you can be negotiated with, I then they demand more. I think and that's the right analogy more. here. I think it's it's economic terrorism. Yeah, yeah. and so ultimately. The, the kind of the warning here is, is that, hey, guys, the Republicans aren't going to be here to protect you forever. They've got other priorities, and they're sticking up for the American worker. Uh, and we're seeing this more and more, especially as the old guard of the Republican Party sweeps out of office. It's a trend I've been tracking for a long time. During Trump's presidency, in just the first couple of years, uh, uh, I think it was uh, late 2019, I did this big story. It was right around New Year's. Uh, uh, with a big interview with Tucker Carlson about it, uh, where the, the you had um, – the, uh, uh, it was about two and a half years into Trump, something like 45, 50 percent of the Republicans who had been in the House uh, when Trump took office and when, or when he won the election were now either gone or on their way out. It's even more than that on the House side. Now you're seeing it on the Senate side. There's a ton of retirements happening all across the country. Senator Toomey in Pennsylvania, Portman in Ohio, Blunt in Missouri. Right? These are the old guard Republicans. They're right. leaving. Who's taking their place? It's people like Josh Hawley, Marsha Blackburn. Bill Haggerty, right? Like it's a firebrand populist. Uh, you know, people like Ron DeSantis are getting elected governor in Florida. Uh, so it, it, what's happening is the old guard is leaving and receding. The new guard is coming in. The new guard is populist. They're not gunning for tax hikes or anything, but hey, guess what? They're more interested in protecting the American worker now, uh, what, than they are in the corporate ideology. Yeah. What What does this mean? Because uh, for the the financial position, because we talked about um, the the business community maybe giving less to Republicans, but is that gap being backfilled 
by just more smaller contributions from kind of a new kind of Republican? Yeah, so one of the things that's really interesting is you're seeing some, uh, Josh Hawley, for instance, I think was the, the highest uh, uh, amount of fundraising of any Senate Republican in the first few months of this year. Josh Hawley is probably one of the most populist upstart Republican senators uh, from Missouri. Uh, and again, that, that friend uh, is replacing those corporate donations. Well, this is a it's a really interesting conversation long term to see what this is going to mean um, for the Republican coalition. And Matt Boyle, Washington political editor, Breitbart, thank you so much for uh, your time today and for tracking this. I know we'll be back with you as this develops. Thanks for your time. Yep, thanks for having me. And after the break, we're going to go to Montana to see how this scenario is being played out in the legislative process. Is it true that they just don't care about businesses anymore? We'll talk about it after the break. The history of religious persecution in China is extensive, and many are not aware of the current oppression of religious groups taking place there. China restricts religious practice and oppresses religious minorities on a sweeping scale. This religious persecution targets those of every faith. Christians, Muslims, Tibetan Buddhists, and Falun Gong practitioners are all victims of the Chinese Communist Party's efforts to suppress any set beliefs that might compete with the party's ideology. This campaign against religion has had and continues to have devastating consequences for those who simply wish to live according to their conscience. Family Research Council's recently updated publication addresses China's consistent abuses of human rights and explains why they cannot be treated like any other country. Learn more about this issue by visiting frc.org slash China. Oh, man. What's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah? Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, I definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org slash app and download or search Stand Firm in the App Store. Okay, that's Stand Firm. Yep, Stand Firm. How do you know all this? Because I'm a SageCon, but that's another story. Huh? Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony Perkins. I want to remind you that not to miss the opportunity to join our Stand Today Together campaign and quadruple your impact for faith, family, and freedom. Join us as we stand up against the cancel culture's attacks on our freedoms and rights. And do so before 10 a.m. this Friday to have your contribution quadrupled. Call 800-225-4008 to donate now. 
And now, for the first time in almost two decades, Montana has a Republican governor and GOP legislative majorities. As a result, bills that were previously unable to advance are coming back with a vengeance. With me now to take a look at some key legislative action is Jeff Lasloffy, president of Montana Family Foundation. Jeff, welcome to Washington Watch. Uh, Joseph, great to be with you. Well, it's good to have you. Now, talk to me. Uh, you've been doing this in Montana for a while. What is it? What's different about this year? What's the environment now that there is a, a GOP control of all the uh, of the government? You know, as President Obama famously said, elections have consequences, and we're seeing those consequences play out right now in the Montana legislature. For the first time in 16 years, we have both houses of the legislature and the governor all at the same time, and not just a governor. We have a governor that is a that is a believer, that is dedicated to those uh, First Amendment principles that you and I are, and that is staunchly pro-life, and that's making a huge difference um, in, in this session going and going forward. And, and tell us some of the things that you have been able to do as a result of the new government yet. There's a few things. I mean, at this point, we years ago, we stood on the steps of the Capitol and watched our bills literally get burnt to a crisp by a Democrat governor that ran a red-hot branding iron with the, word, with the word veto right through our bills as a publicity stunt. Now, this session, we're going to pass at least eight pieces of pro-life legislation. Uh, we have the same Save Women's Sports Act that, um, that will um, say that biological males can't compete against women in sports. Uh, we've got a Religious Freedom Restoration Act that's on the verge of passing and should pass in the next couple of days. We have a Religion is Essential Act that will say that churches cannot be shut down during pandemics when when grocery stores, hardware stores, and liquor stores are allowed to remain open. And we also have a, a bill protecting freedom of speech and association on college campuses. It's a big session for us. Well, it sounds like you guys are doing great work. I want to I wanna talk a little bit about the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Um, in recent years, that legislation has caused quite a ruckus. We've, we saw it in Indiana when, when Mike Pence was the governor. Uh, we've seen it in Arizona where the state nearly got shut down. HB2 in North Carolina was a national story. Um, mm -hmm. Similar legislation. Why are we not hearing about it in the same way in Montana? Because we in the, in the last segment we had this conversation about whether – it's true that government or whether the corporations are losing their influence in government in right wing circles. Do you have any reason to think that that's true? Because we're not hearing the pushback in the same way. Are you experiencing it on the ground? Well, we're certainly not experiencing it on the ground to the same degree that other states have in recent history. Uh, did you know that North Dakota just passed this bill about two weeks ago? And once again, all we're hearing is crickets out of North Dakota. Right. I, I wouldn't say that the other side has given up. They're still pushing hard. But in Montana, we have a history of large corporations um, that literally ran the state for years and were finally pushed out. Um, we have a history of that happening in Montana, and we do not want the Googles and Amazons of the world telling us how to run our lives. And so I think we're starting to see some pushback in that area. The other thing that's interesting with the Religious Freedom Restoration Act is that when it first passed in Congress in the 90s and then coming forward, it was always supported by both parties. Um, in fact, the original federal 
Act was signed into law by President Clinton. It's only in recent years that the LGBT community has decided that this is a bad bill and they want to kill it. And in Montana, they can't point to any way it's ever been used negatively against them. They just say that they're fearful that it might be, so they're going to oppose it. I think that's a really important point because the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, again, is a is clear standard than exists in some places for what the government has to do before they can restrict religious freedom. So it's, it's good to, if you're supportive of, of uh, limiting government's interference on, on people's lives and conscience. But are you fine? And it was, it passed Congress, as you mentioned, nearly unanimously during the Clinton administration and President Clinton signed it. Are you also finding bipartisan support in Montana for it now? Absolutely not. It is locked up on party lines with some liberal Republicans going with the Democrats, but we won't we won't get any Democrat votes on this bill, which is a shame. I mean, really, the only thing the bill does is it's a set of instructions from the legislative branch to the judicial branch telling the courts that if a case arises um, asserting that government has uh, substantially burdened the religious liberties of a person and that case goes to court, they have to use – strict scrutiny or the or the toughest legal standard uh, available to the court as they judge it. That's the only thing they do, and they're opposed to it. Now, Jeff, you, you can hear the music, so we have limited time, but tell us, how is Governor Gianforte uh, leading on this? We've seen what's going on in South Dakota. Is it different in Montana? Uh, governor Gianforte has taken the lead. The lieutenant governor actually came in and testified in front of the bill. We're going to get this thing across the finish line this session. That's great news. And Jeff Lazloppi, Montana Family Foundation, thanks for your time and thank you for your courage and leadership there in Montana. Appreciate you being with us. Thank you, Joseph. Have a great day. And coming up after the break, Biden administration officials received a tongue lashing from their Chinese counterparts during a, a summit in Alaska. And President Biden talked about what was happening with China during his press conference today. We will discuss all of that and more with Adrian Zenz coming up after the break. Get a trusted perspective on the news of the day every day. Listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins to get honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world. Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins live every weekday on over 800 radio stations across the country. Or listen to the show when it works for you by visiting TonyPerkins.com. On the show, you'll hear from guests like Ben Carson, Senator Josh Hawley, Representative Vicki Hartzler, Molly Hemingway, Pastor Jack Hibbs, Dana Lash, Sissy Graham Lynch, Pastor John MacArthur, Eric Metaxas, Albert Moeller, and more. Tony is joined by leading political figures, pastors, and policy and culture experts who will inspire you to be engaged and informed on the important issues facing America. For a Christian perspective on the news of the day, tune in to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins at TonyPerkins.com. Ever since the Supreme Court handed down its infamous Roe v. Wade decision in 1973 that legalized abortion nationwide, a national debate has raged over whether the government should fund abortion. In 1976, Congress banned taxpayer funding of abortion and Medicaid by passing the Hyde Amendment. Several states have followed suit, passing their own restrictions on abortion funding. However, because government funding is a complex system of joint federal and state programs, 
Completely banning taxpayer funding for abortions and abortion businesses like Planned Parenthood is challenging. There is still much work to be done to free the American taxpayer from funding the horrific practice of abortion. Family Research Council's new publication clearly explains the Hyde Amendment and why we need to keep it in order to save taxpayers from being forced to fund abortion. Access this important information by visiting frc.org slash Hyde. What's on your daily or weekly reading list? Are you looking for honest and informative commentary from fellow believers on the current issues facing our culture? Family Research Council has just the thing. Check out FRC's blog at frcblog.com. The content on our blog is written by our policy experts as well as outside contributors. On our blog, you can read about a wide variety of topics, including religious liberty, life, marriage, family, sexuality, public policy, and the culture. Read up on some of our latest titles like Four Disturbing Trends in Religious Freedom Worldwide, Legitimizing Looting Jeopardizes Liberty for All, The Media Still Doesn't Get It, Conservatives Tend to Vote Conservative, and more. At Family Research Council, our mission is to advance faith, family, and freedom in the culture by helping you live out your faith and to stand for truth. Our blog is here to help you do that. Stay informed and get the resources you need at frcblog.com. Joseph Backholm in for Tony Perkins today. The Chinese Communist Party is in attack mode, hitting back and silencing any opposition to its atrocities by inflicting punitive measures on anyone who speaks out. The Council of the European Union announced on Monday that it would impose restrictive measures on four Chinese nationals and one entity over China's mistreatment of its minority Uyghur population. And China hit back shortly after with a tit-for-tat countermeasure by sanctioning 10 individuals and four entities that they claim have spread rumors and lies about Xinjiang. Among those who have been put on China's sanction list is Adrian Zenz, one of the world's leading scholars on China's government policies toward the country's western regions of Tibet and Xinjiang. In 2017-2018, Dr. Zenz Analysis played a significant role in bringing to light the Chinese government's campaign of repression and mass internment directed against ethnic Uyghur persons in Xinjiang. Dr. Zenz is a senior fellow in China Studies at Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, and he joins me now. Dr. Zenz, welcome back to the program. Yes, thank you indeed. We are glad to have you. Now tell us, what signal is the Chinese Communist Party trying to send with these new uh, sanctions? These countermeasures that China imposed on European individuals and entities, uh, including myself, were at least three times stronger than the sanctions that uh, the European Union tried to uh, impose on Xinjiang officials for committing these atrocities. Um, in my opinion, the countermeasures from Beijing signal a fundamental shift in China's strategy, first from denying that the oppression was happening, then to trying to explain away and lie about the evidence and come up with excuses. Now China is going on the offensive. It is actively trying to silence and to slander uh, and even to um, 
initiate lawsuits against anybody speaking out on the atrocities in Xinjiang. And that's quite a dangerous development. Several European uh, scholars and academics have noticed how that is actually an attack on Western academic freedom. Among the sanctioned entities is Europe's largest China research think tank, the German Marex Institute. So this represents a, a real escalation of the situation. Now, this appears to be part of a pattern. And there was a, a German language report that came out recently that highlighted the Chinese Communist Party's attempts to control the global narrative about China. Do you think that's really what their goal is? And is that even possible? The Chinese government is basically jeopardizing the major investment agreement that they were able to secure at the end of last year. So only about three or four months ago. Uh, they sanctioned several European parliamentarians, and the European Parliament is the very entity that will have to ratify this investment agreement. Now, basically, this, one could think, well, this has really backfired, because now, of course, the Europeans are talking about not ratifying this deal. So what, what is, has Beijing underestimated or miscalculated, but no, rather, we have to realize Beijing is saying, look, we don't need this investment deal. But you might. We have other options. We are doing well. We are stronger, and you are weaker. And that's also the message I think that Beijing was sending to Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State in Alaska, that the uh, uh, you know a really escalation at the meeting uh, there between the U.S. and China. Uh, Beijing is basically saying, look, if you try to um, speak out critically on what we are doing to the Uyghurs, we're going to hit you. And we're going to block you and we're going to try to weaken and attack you because we can afford to do it. And we don't care about the criticism. So they are going after the critics. Um, most recently, actually, yesterday and the day before, uh, Chinese consumers have been riled up by the government to start to boycott um, Western brands like Nike and the European textile maker, garment maker H&M. Because those two companies publicly stated they would no longer source from Xinjiang over forced labor. Now they're being boycotted in China. So again, the Chinese government is trying to force people. You have to choose between us or the others. Either you're for us or against us. Now, I, I, I want to talk about Nike and H&M. But more broadly, for those of us who, you know, most people haven't lived in China, cultural differences are real. In, in any political negotiation, there's things that, that somebody cares about, and then there's things that they don't necessarily care about. What do you think matters most to the Chinese communists in these, in these negotiations, in the, in the relationships they're trying to develop with the international community? What is the leverage that, that you can get with the Chinese Communist Party? Because what are they trying to accomplish primarily? China used to try to buy favor and to gain access, to gain access to markets, to gain access to technology. Now they're saying, we don't need this anymore. We don't need you anymore as much, at least. They're still a little bit more careful with the United States. They're not trying to completely offend the United States. So China's countermeasures with the U.S. have been tit for tat. But this countermeasure with Europe was like three times what Europe did. And therefore, Chinese, the Chinese message is, you are weak and we are stronger. We don't need this anymore. If you cross the red line, then we're cutting you off, basically. And the red line 
shockingly, is their atrocities, what they're doing not only to the Uyghurs but also to Tibetans and in Hong Kong and threatening Taiwan. This has been declared now officially a red line. If you cross it, Beijing will cross you. And that, that is a new escalation. Is it true that China doesn't need Europe anymore, economically speaking? I think China is playing a little bit the strong man. I think they're quite proud to see how their economic economy has developed, that they have been tackling the pandemic, the COVID pandemic, uh, better than other countries, of course, at a cost. But still, they have contained it much, much more so than, than the West. And I think China is thinking that they're really seeing this from a position of strength. It's not, it's, of course, China does need a European market. But of course, Europe is not about to cut off any Chinese imports. Uh, it's just about uh, engaging one step closer. China is kind of, there's a little poker play here. China's kind of speculating that Europe will actually say, look, we, we kind of need this really. We might need to take a step back and forget about Xinjiang for a while and think of our own interest. So I think China is, China is playing with Europe. There's a risk involved, but China obviously thinks it's worth taking the risk. But I think also China is really saying, look, this is a hard red line. Even if we lose out economically, we can take it. You know, you're not going to cut us off completely. You can't. You're too dependent on us. Um, that's, that's what it has come to. That might actually be true. Uh, and, and, and that's kind of the, the play that they're making. Now, I want to talk a little bit with you about the, the relationship with China and, and uh, President Biden and the, and the United States as well. And I'm going to play a, a short clip here of – and this is, this is brief, but I don't know what to read into this. And I want to get your reaction to this comment that, that Biden made about his relationship with the Chinese president. The thing that I, I admire about dealing with Xi is he understands. He makes no, pre, no pretense about not understanding what I'm saying anymore into him. What do you think that means, that they, they are honest about the fact that they don't understand each other? I think um, Biden has made some comments about Xi that were quite difficult to decipher because they were not very coherent. Um, there was a lot of back and forth about some comments he made about cultural relativism with the Chinese on Twitter and social media. Uh, I've taken a somewhat cautious approach. Um, I like to observe what does the Department of State do and what does the NSA do, the national security. Uh, and I think from what I have observed, the Biden administration strategy, both in Alaska and on Monday, uh, and on Monday, not only the European Union sanctioned China over Xinjiang, but several other countries as well. It was a coordinated move by the European Union, by the United Kingdom, by Canada, and the U.S. sanctioned two more officials as well. And what I see the Biden administration doing, uh, apart from some fairly incoherent and maybe highly also misunderstandable statements that he's made about Xi Jinping, I think what I see him doing is try to build a coalition to contain China. And do you think that's going to be successful? I think what we saw on uh, Monday was a very definite initial success. Um, 
Whether it will be successful or not, I think that's more or less the only chance that we have in the West. We have to work together. China is a big country. It is a very successful country. It has a rising military. Even the United States by itself, I think, is hard-pressed to contain China in a number of ways. And I think a multilateral approach that does not compromise. You know, the important thing is we can't compromise on uh, China over human rights, uh, you know, uh, trading it with something else like uh, climate change goals, you know. But working together with allies and, and building strong alliances, I think, is actually is a crucial strategy. And it has to be tried. And I think... Uh, this week has shown that it can be successful. One of the problems is that the European Union for a long time has been very, very weak on China, very hesitant to do anything strong, anything significant, very disunited. Now, interestingly, with China's affront and the sanctions against Europeans, there's a chance that this could change. Do you have a sense of how the Chinese government has perceived or how they're reacting to the change in administrations from the Trump administration to the Biden administration? Do they see that as a good thing, as a bad thing? Do they not care? What's their perspective on that? I think it was quite clear that China, on the one hand, tried to hand like offer like an olive branch. There were some conciliatory notes. There was some toning down of the wolf warrior aggression you know, I mean, they were using swear words against Mike Pompeo, you know. I mean, it, it was incredible. I, I, I couldn't believe it. They were a lot more respectful and cautious with the incoming Biden administration. And I think because China, China had some hope, I think, that Biden might be a bit weak, you know, and he might be a bit gullible. Um, now, in Alaska, China did not hold back publicly. China came across very strong confronting the United States and saying, you don't have any moral high ground here. You can't claim that your world order, the liberal free world order, is better uh, than what we have on offer. That's what the Chinese told the U.S. Look, you can't say you have better human rights than we do. Look at your country. Look at your past, your history, etc. So they were really trying to attack the, the U.S. leadership of the free world. That's what they were attacking. And um, I think that means that their strategy, in essence, has not changed. Whether they will treat the Biden administration differently than the Trump administration remains to be seen. But my guess is probably not. Now, we've gotten to this point in the conversation, and we haven't discussed the Uyghurs yet. And and they have been a, a... and appropriately so, uh, an international conversation and the, the Chinese government's mistreatment of them. What would your advice be to the Biden administration for how to, how to try to help the Uyghurs and how to deal with China? Uh, it's very interesting. Um, the, the new Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, said at his confirmation hearing that he was particularly concerned about forced labor and not importing goods made with forced labor. And, uh, you know, further, further messages from the White House have basically confirmed that that's a priority. And that's quite interesting because my priority would be just that. My priority would be to say forced labor is the number one issue where we can exert pressure on the Chinese, where we can at least accept a cost, uh, a penalty for doing such evil, you know. And sure. um so I think that that's a very good initial sign. And now further steps need to be taken. Of course, 
the biggest step needs to be taken by the Senate now with the Weaker Forced Labor Prevention Act. That would really move things to the next level by sanctioning the import of any products from Xinjiang, anything, not just cotton and tomatoes, but anything, including polysilicon, polar, uh, solar panels. You know, uh, Here, Biden's climate goals are actually running into some moral problems because uh, much of the world's uh, raw material for solar panels is actually produced in Xinjiang mm. and with forced labor. Well, that does present a dilemma in, in other um Entities, in this case companies, are facing this dilemma. And you, and you mentioned Nike and H&M, who have basically said we're not going to deal with, uh, with Xinjiang. Um, do you see that developing and emerging with corporate companies where they are no longer – they're going to ignore the bottom line and, and prioritize human rights when it comes to their dealings with China? Yes, what we are seeing is that a number of companies have already pulled out more quietly without making any public statement in order to not offend the Chinese, which now, of course, has become extremely acute with the public boycott of Nike and H&M, who, by the way, H&M deleted their, their one-year-old statement about Xinjiang forced labor, which was from March or April last year. They deleted it. So we see some caving into pressure here to some extent. Um, I think uh, other companies are planning their exit strategy because, you know, as we've seen, there were the first sanctions on imports from Xinjiang came last year. Then the, uh, the complete ban on cotton and tomatoes came this year. Companies have exit strategies, but, but what's really needed is legislation and government measures to make it mandatory. Adrian, I gotta, I gotta cut you off there. Adrian Zenz, we appreciate your diligence on this. Great to talk with you. Thanks for being part of the program. And for the rest of you, thank you for joining us today. We couldn't do it without you. We will see you next time on Washington Watch. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.